This is an ABC podcast. If you thought trigger warnings were a good idea, think again. They were designed to assist victims of PTSD and they may actually have a negative impact. Hi, I'm Amanda Vanstone and this is Counterpoint, the program that brings you out of the ordinary stories. Living in a dangerous region no doubt impacts on your psyche, thus ordinary weapons might not suit South Korea anymore. Nuclear is their aim. They do live in a touchy zone. I can understand their concern. On a happier note, we'll take a look at a wonderful, just extraordinary story about space, technology and women in the United Arab Emirates. It is a ripper. And finally, we look at us and birds. What do we have in common? Quite a bit, actually. But first, to trigger warnings. You've heard of trigger warnings. It's where you say to people who some call snowflakes, if you come to this lecture, such and such will be mentioned or watch this movie or whatever. And many people think they're a great idea, but maybe they're not. Now, to talk to us about that, we're going to be joined by Maine Kara Yukubian. She's a graduate student in clinical psychology and her research interests are in judgment and decision-making across your lifespan. So she's just the sort of person we need to talk to. Maine Kara Yukubian, is there anything in your life... I'm not going to ask you to tell me what it is, unless you want to, that could work as a trigger for you. Yeah, I think so. I can think of a few things, actually. Yeah. Do you think most of us have them? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Because I think trauma is a very common experience. It's a common human experience, and I'm sure many of us have had some sorts of traumas in our past. You actually start your article by saying that most of the time humans can overcome adversity and recover from it. And you go on and list what some of those might be. And we are fairly resilient. So where did this come from? That more particularly younger people say, no, you have to let me know what might be in that lecture or that movie or that book because, you know, it'll upset me. Where did that start, that process? Some people have talked about it as like a coddling that emerged from helicopter parents. So I think it's a more recent phenomenon that maybe emerged on campuses. So like I've come across a report by university professors from American Association of University Professors in 2016. And they were talking about this infantilized and anti-intellectual phenomenon emerging on campuses where students were shying away from specific topics, actually. So not trauma generally, but more politically controversial topics like sex, race, class, capitalism, colonialism. And they were demanding triggers for those sorts of issues more so. But like trigger warnings, what their original intent was to help people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So it got a Mm -hmm. little misconstrued as the years went by. Sure. Now, does it help people with PTSD to have a trigger? No. That was a pretty clear answer, no. Okay, why doesn't um, it help? What does it do? Because one of the symptoms of PTSD is the persistent avoidance of trauma-related cues, and trauma-related cues are known as triggers. So avoidance of a trigger doesn't help the disorder. It's actually a symptom of it, like the disorder itself. And it's a maladaptive coping strategy. And what clinical psychologists try to do over time is help someone with PTSD gradually get comfortable with being exposed to potential triggers and rebuilding that. But aside from it just like being a symptom of the disorder itself, there's been other research conducted on trigger warnings like more generally. And all these empirical studies are either saying it's ineffective or maybe it might even be doing more harm than good among both populations who self-report PTSD, just the general public, or people who might qualify for a probable PTSD diagnosis. So it seems like empirical research thus far is saying 
it's useless at best and harmful at worst. Yeah, okay. Now, you mentioned about trigger warnings infantilizing young adults because, in a sense, it says we're telling you this because you won't be capable of dealing with what other people deal with. Is that right? Treat you like a child? Yeah, and to some extent, I think the students are asking for it and the faculty is kind of giving in to their fear of complaints that they might offend someone, they might make a student uncomfortable, and it might be this awkward climate, but it's kind of just brought upon by the campus climate. Yeah. And what probably happens is when subjects require trigger warnings, you know, I I reckon it's a fair bit that lecturers then start to avoid those areas because it's just too much bother and I don't want to upset students. And that means there's not as much critical thinking in the classroom because no one's being challenged. Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally right. And like I can see that from my own experience. There's like certain topics I want to avoid in class discussions because I don't want to upset anyone. I don't want to get a professor on my bad side. But at the same time, I think that's very limiting to my educational experiences. And mm. I think it cheapens it. And also, like... I could learn something valuable by engaging in that conversation as awkward or uncomfortable or offensive it might be to certain groups of people, but that's probably where a lot of learning happens and we deprive ourselves of that opportunity when we just avoid these subjects yeah, or engage with them with this warning ahead of time, right? Sure. Um, I don't know whether you did the research or you've put your hands on it, but there's different rates of PTSD in different countries. How does that work? Yes, yeah, so PTSD isn't that prevalent. Dr. Richard McNally in his op-ed, he said trauma is common, but PTSD is rare. So as of 2008, and this was one of the more recent stats I could get for Canada, the prevalence of PTSD, so the proportion of people who meet the clinical criteria for PTSD at some point during their lifetime this was estimated to be around 9.2%. And yeah. the one-month rate, so if you go back to past 30 days, it was thought to be around 2.4%. Yep. Whereas the 12-month prevalence of PTSD in the U.S. is 3.5%. And in European, Asian, African, Latin American countries is substantially less. It's only around 05 to 1%. And going back to how we started this conversation, you asked me if there are things that might trigger me of certain traumatic events from my past, absolutely. Yeah. And that would be probably true for you as well. But most people don't go on to develop PTSD because we're incredibly resilient as human beings. Sure, sure. Now, what do you think the harm is that comes from this? Okay, they're not helpful. We get that. Trigger warnings don't help. What harm can they cause? What ends up happening is that it puts a person in this anticipatory state where they're expecting something negative. So it elicits an emotionally negative waiting period before someone engages with the content that they were warned about. And beyond that, it's just ineffective in helping them mitigate whatever negative reactions do follow. So I don't think it's like particularly psychologically damaging in that moment, but it ends up just being counter-therapeutic, like it doesn't help, it creates anxiety, it gives rise to negative emotions. And I think over time, like if one of the symptoms that clinicians try to help with is the avoidance of triggers, and if someone is constantly, like let's say someone does have PTSD and they're going out of their way to avoid the cues of their traumas, it's just going to reinforce that and it's just maladaptive and counter-therapeutic and it's going to be harder to treat, I think. And they're just doing themselves a disservice. And at that point, what you need is therapy. You don't need trigger warnings. We should be getting to a point where we don't want trigger warnings. I think that should be the shared goal here from both sides of the debate. Sure, where you're able to cope with life generally yeah, rather than avoid aspects of life. I get yeah. that. This is a great example, isn't it, of people who are well-meaning. I'm sure the people who started this off didn't do it with bad faith. They thought, well, well this might help, you know, we'll let you know. But the thing is, when you do things in good faith, you've still got to keep checking that it's actually working the way you want. Otherwise, you end up yeah, with what we've got now. Going from trying to help people with PTSD 
into, you know, this class might not suit you because it covers this area, is right. a, a, a tremendous mission creep from what it originally started as. Yeah, tremendous. there's been a big I, I mean, jump. Yeah, yeah absolutely. terrible. Well, Maine, thank you very much for talking to us again today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. That was good, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Trigger warnings, warning of nasty stuff. Mm, nuclear war would be. As soon as one mentions the word nuclear, some people start to sort of, I don't know, freeze up and panic. I've got a personal view that we should be moving to nuclear power. It's the cleanest and most efficient energy source we can look at. But nuclear weapons, well, yeah, that makes people very touchy. There's a lot of debate over the AUKUS subs. And now South Korea wants nuclear weapons. What should we be thinking about that? Or what are the things to take into account? It's not that we at CounterPoint want to tell you what you ought to think. And I don't think our guest wants to tell us what we ought to think. But he'll give us some things to think about. Our guest is Geoffrey Robertson. He's an Associate Professor of Diplomatic Studies at Yonsei University and a visiting fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. His research interests are the diplomatic practice and foreign policy of middle powers, and his particular focus is on the Korean Peninsula, so he is just the guy to talk to. Just the guy. Geoffrey Robertson, what's your favourite South Korean meal? And are you a kimchi fan? My favourite South Korean meal, I would have to say it is kimchi and it's kimchi jjigae, which is a soup made from kimchi. Oh, okay. Is it hot? Yeah, it's pretty spicy, but, you know, the the flavour really comes in, you know, like all soups, when you leave it on the stove on the first day, the second day, the third day, by the third day, it's just perfect. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's get off the interesting topic of Korean food onto nuclear weapons. What do you think has driven this desire by the South Korean government to secure nuclear weapons? Yeah, so there's some really basic responses to that. I think are more used internally in South Korea to justify the the pursuit of nuclear weapons, but they're used internally because they want external partners to recognise, you know, they've got a rationale of why they're pursuing nuclear weapons. And that is North Korea, number one. North Korea's got greater nuclear missile capability. Number two, the growth of China and destabilization of the region. And number three, the Trump factor, decreased faith in the willingness of the United States to support South Korea. Mm. Okay, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine wouldn't have made anybody in South Korea more comfortable, would it? Yes, certainly not. But, you know, to tell the truth, I think there's, like, much deeper, much, much deeper rationales for why they want nuclear weapons. You know, North Korea, China, even the Ukraine, these are just squalls on the surface. Underneath, mm. much deeper and more powerful current pushing South Korea's pursuit of nuclear weapons. You've written a piece for the Australian Institute of International Affairs, and in that you mentioned that national pride is a core contributor to this decision. And I can understand that, but at the same time, I find myself saying, hold on, you want to have these terrible weapons because it makes you prouder of yourself? It's a bit thin, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty bizarre, isn't it? But you've got to understand there's no nuclear taboo in South Korea as there is in Australia. I mean, Mm -hmm. Australia's led the fight for nuclear non-proliferation for the NPT Treaty. They led the fight for the establishment of the Nuclear Suppliers Group, the Canberra Commission, the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. You know, Australia was right up there fighting against French nuclear testing during the 1980s. And even our music in the 1980s, Western pop music, was all about anti-nuclear weapons. Mm. That never existed in South Korea. You know, in South Korea in the 1980s, there was covert nuclear programs. In 1975, 1982 and 2000, they were actually undertaking experiments to secure nuclear weapons. So they just don't have the same level of nuclear taboo that we have in Australia. Mm. And if they were able to secure nuclear weapons and the United States agreed, that would bring them closer to the United States and give the United States, if you like, another balancing point against China in the region. 
Well, that's the way it's promoted. But I actually have a very different view. Yeah. In my opinion, it's not going to lead to closer alliance with the United States, but quite the opposite. So nuclear weapons, once the current government gets nuclear weapons, they're also mm-hmm. obviously going to belong to future governments. And there's a big yes. divide between the left and the right in South Korea. The right, right is pro the United States, and the left is somewhat less pro-United yep. States, to put it yeah. mildly. And a lot of people think that securing nuclear weapons is almost a progression. It's a progression towards, firstly, realigning its you know, alliance relationship with the United States, acquiescing to China's dominance in the region, securing the capacity to have armed neutrality, and ultimately, unification with North Korea. Now, that's what some people believe, and that's one side of politics. So sooner or later, when that side of politics gets in, the whole equation of South Korea with nuclear weapons totally transforms. Mm. So to put it in the shortest form, you don't think this idea has been properly thought through? I don't think it's been thought through at all. I think particularly, particularly in the United States, you know, the United States seems for some reason, just to focus on China and North Korea as the rationale for South Korea's pursuit of nuclear weapons. They're missing the national pride element. They're missing the striving for independence that is historically mm-hmm. pushed in South Korea. And they're missing the domestic politics, which are you know, both really powerful elements in the push for nuclear weapons. Mm, OK. So what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think South Korea is going to pursue nuclear weapons. It's going to take the next steps, perhaps not in the current presidential administration, but in a future presidential administration. Because the way politics works in South Korea is that, well, political power is really centered around the individual, around the presidential candidate. Once they get into power, they have their own advisors and their own advisors have very much a powerful influence over the policies for the forthcoming administration. And it's very different from Australia where party politics plays a large role. In South Korea, it's all individuals. So all we need is a maverick leader in South Korea who's going to play upon the insecurity in the region, the nationalism, Mm -hmm. the cause of greater independence, and you've got a greater chance for South Korea pursuing a nuclear weapons program. Well, it's all not sounding very positive, is it, really? Rather a gloomy outlook that you have, but it's fair enough. Hey, but Um, the food's good. But the food's good, yeah, okay. Jeffrey Robertson, (laughs) thanks for joining us and alerting us to what South Korea wants to do. And if they are successful, no doubt there'll be a hell of a debate in Australia as well. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Oh, I've got some praise to offer to coffee times. You know, I'm in a group that meets once a week for coffee. Each person makes a cake once every 10 weeks. We've all now learned how to make cakes. That started through COVID. Male and female, not one occupation repeated. The dead opposite of a clique. And it is remarkably therapeutic. Different perspectives and views shared in a happy and relaxed way. How lucky is that? If everyone had this opportunity, we'd be a lot better off. I've been to other groups where there's the occasional grump who is annoyed that others don't share the same view. I mean, seriously, you have to wonder who some people think they are. Anyway, my tip is to organise such a group. Meet at someone's house so there's only you guys and you can chew the fat just for fun. My heavens, it is a luxury. Now, this is a great story for me to share with my coffee group. Good news is great, isn't it? When someone, a company, maybe a nation state has done something fabulous and they've got it right, hit it on the knocker. 
You think, wow, isn't that good news? Well, in 2020, the UAE's space agency landed its first Mars mission, less than a decade after it was created. Get that? They've only been around for 10 years and boom, they launched their first Mars mission. Pretty good stuff. Very exciting at the time. Now, to find out more about this, we're going to talk to Stephen Dowling. He's the deputy editor at BBC Future. We've spoken to him before and we're going to again. Stephen Dowling, welcome to CounterPoint. Is this one of the most startling technological achievements that you're aware of, of an agency to achieve? It is pretty incredible given how young the UAE's space agency is. I mean, it is literally a decade old and they started with this very ambitious plan to really, you know, put their space agency on the map, you know, instead of looking at the moon, which a lot of space agencies did in the past, they went right past that and looked at Mars. And, you know, they are one of only two countries in the world who managed to get a spacecraft around Mars on the first try. The other one is India. So, yes, it's an incredible feat. It is. Now, this spacecraft's not very big, is it? No, no. I've seen some mock-ups of it when I visited the space agency's hub in Dubai. I mean, you could, you know, in classic journalese where you describe something in a way that everyone can visualise it, it's no bigger than a very small hatchback car. You know, we're not talking about something like Starship One, which kind of took off last week. It's a very small spacecraft. Obviously, it wasn't a manned spacecraft. This is a probe, a scientific explorer, so it doesn't need all of the stuff, life support equipment that you would have in a spacecraft that's actually carrying human beings. I mean, it was going a fair way, wasn't it? It's going 493 million kilometres from Earth. That's a long way in anybody's language. So we're talking about a long distance and essentially quite a small craft, which was incidentally called Hope. Now, when it came to getting near, there's an issue, isn't it? Because you've sort of got to slow down a bit. Can you talk us through the slowdown that's required and how they do that? So this is why people with very important degrees are in charge of space missions and not people like myself. Yeah, you're not only a very far way away from home, but given that distance, there's actually a delay between giving the spacecraft an instruction to move, to speed up, to slow down, and actually getting the feedback that that maneuver or that instruction has gone the right way. So when they were planning this maneuver and this setup so that they would enter Martian orbit, they didn't really know if it had been successful for a few minutes because just physics think you know instructions take a longer time to reach something around mars than they do you know a satellite around earth or even the moon Mm. well given the size we're talking about a small hatchback and the millions of kilometers the maneuver they have to do near mars has a tolerance of plus or minus 300 kilometers that's you know after a journey of nearly half a billion kilometres. It's just Exactly. It's, it's a fraction of a fraction. And this is the sort of eye of the needle that space scientists have to push a thread through. We're talking about, you know, infinitesimal distances in comparison, like, I don't know, painting a two-storey house and, you know, being aware of a part of the house that's the size of a matchhead. It's an incredible feat. You know, especially on the first try, to have everything go, you know, pretty much as well as it could. Yeah. I mean, the slowdown that has to start for what has to happen to happen starts 2,300 kilometres out. Now, that sounds a long way, but it's not not much of a long way when you're talking about half a billion kilometres. Not much at all. Absolutely not, no. So you have to start breaking 2,300 kilometres before and hope that you get it right and you be in the right zone that 300 kilometres we were talking about away. Now, this is a tremendous achievement. There were 
quite a few women involved in this, weren't there? And, and you know, when some of us think of Arab nations, we don't think of women having that many chances, but they were certainly in there on this, weren't they? Absolutely, yeah. So the sort of mission science lead who became a minister in the UAE government, I spoke to her when I was in Dubai, Sarah al Amiri. So she trained as an aerospace computer scientist and an aerospace scientist. Very young, I think. I think she's about 36 now, but just very dynamic and obviously a very good project manager. And the new sort of head of the sciences, who's just spoken at a, a symposium in Austria, that even now has sort of spread a bit more of the scientific discoveries that Hope has found. That's mm. Hessa Al Matrushi. I spent some time talking to her after I came back to the UK over the phone. She's she's one of the best science communicators that I've ever spoken to. She was able to really bring alive you know, the science that they were looking for and really sort of, you know, make you feel excited about what the sort of yeah, spacecraft well, that's, was hopefully going to find. People who are good at their job can do that sort of thing. What I like that you commented about Al- Almiri was that what she was really proud of was not so much getting it there, but the first unprocessed image that came back. It mm. was apparently beyond expectation and, you know, that had lots of challenges and she just thought, this is fantastic, you know, we've got what we're after and more. And this would be a great moment of national pride and also kickstart industries in the UAE that are space-related, wouldn't it? Absolutely. You know, we all have our sort of preconceptions of what a place like the UAE, Dubai is, you know, the glitzy hotels and, Mm. you know, the oil wells off in the distance in the desert. But um, the UAE is going through quite an interesting stage in its development, a country that's 50 years old, more than 50 years old. And even aviation, which has been, you know, a huge earner for the country with the giant airport hubs, that's sort of being dampened down a bit because I think the UAE saw just how that sector could be damaged by something like the COVID pandemic. So things like this, things like a space industry are going to become ever more important to the UAE. They don't launch spacecraft from the UAE. It's crowded airspace. It's a very crowded waterway, the Persian Gulf. But they can, you know, help seed some of their knowledge and experience with other smaller space agencies in the same way that they got a lot of help from South Korea and from various agencies in the US as well. Mm. And they actually think they can learn from looking into the layers of Mars' atmosphere and seeing how apparently there are chemical composition changes in there from, you know, high up to further down. And they can look at how the climate changes and there's some impact apparently with the escape of hydrogen and oxygen at higher altitude. So what I'm trying to convey by that is that This wasn't just a simple, let's show them we can do it and send a box up and take pictures. They had quite specific things that they were wanting to achieve when they got there. Yes, the main mission for HOPE was to try and and get the most complete picture of Martian weather. There have been snapshots by many other spacecraft that have gone into orbit that have visited Mars, and some of those have been really important in terms of getting a better understanding of what the Martian atmosphere is like, but no spacecraft has got as much information as HOPE has. HOPE has spent an entire Martian year wandering about above the planet and observing its weather and its auroras and just seeing, like you say, the chemical composition, it's hydrogen escaping, what's the composition of the atmosphere layers. And, you know, how similar are they to our own planets? Well, it turns out, you know, there are some similarities between the Martian atmosphere and Earth's atmosphere, which, you know, is kind of interesting when you consider that, you know, a lot of the scientific missions that are going to Mars, you know, the question in the background is, 
did it once have life? What did that life look like? And why is it no longer there? Yeah, well, you often hear, oh, well, you might not, but girls often hear a sort of passing comment about vast expenditures on equipment, our boys and their toys. But in this case, it's girls and search for knowledge. And I'm really grateful that you got onto this story and brought it to our attention. And we've got a couple of women over there doing a fantastic job. And look, this is a fantastic job, not just as women are involved. That's almost incidental, but it's worth mentioning. It's a fantastic job for a country to achieve in its first attempt. And you mentioned the excitement that they feel for what might come from this, you know. Apparently the year they're there has got light dust storms, but in the future they might have a really decent regional storm or a, a global one. And they're already imagining what they'll learn from that. So reading your article gave me enthusiasm for their project. I felt sort of happy reading it. So I'm grateful you wrote it and I'm grateful you shared it with us on CounterPoint today. Thank you so much for letting me come on and talk about it. It was an absolutely brilliant experience to, to sort of go out and talk to some of the people who did it. And I think it's a bit of a snapshot into what space exploration is like in the 21st century. It's not the sort of space race between global superpowers who are in competition with each other. It's a lot more multi-layered and nuanced, and there's a lot of interesting stuff going around. Certainly is. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Do you know, when we go up in space, I wonder what the birds think. And did you know we've got more in common with them than you think? If I say to you, how like the Kiwi are we, do you think I mean we're like New Zealanders? No, I'm talking about humans being like the Kiwi bird. Well, maybe there is something there that we need to look at. I'm told that to understand helpless human babies, our big brains and the oddly involved dads, we need to look at the evolution of birds, not mammals. To help understand this issue, we're going to talk to Anton Martino Truswell. He is an evolutionary biologist and he's the dean of the Graduate House at St Paul's College, University of Sydney. He writes on human culture and society, evolution and animal behaviour and his latest book is The Parrot in the Mirror, How Evolving to Be Like Birds Made Us Human. It came out last year and he lives in Sydney and he joins us now from Sydney. Anton Martino Truswell, what's your favourite bird? Oh, it's like asking me my favourite song. It sort of depends on the mood that you're in. Oh, um, okay, well. I really love parrots because they're very interesting and I think they really are our, our window to seeing our similarity with birds as a whole and that, of course, leads to the title of the book and they play a featuring role there. I also have a soft spot for ducks. A lot of my laboratory research was done with domestic ducks or mallards that we have selectively bred to one mm. or another breed. But ducks in general, I think, are really interesting and were a big part of my childhood, uh, you know, going and feeding ducks with oh, my okay. grandmother and things like that. So, but really, you know, it depends on the question that's most piquing my interest on that day and it leads you to all different parts of the avian order. Sure, sure. Look, before we get into the detail of what you're talking about, can I suggest you look on social media for Flaco, F-L-A-C-O. Mm. It's a horned owl of some sort. All right. Which escaped from a zoo in New York. I think some hoodlums opened the gate. <laughs> and it had been locked up for 10 to 12 years, and if we could find those hoodlums, we should give them a medal. It's found <laughs> its place in Central Park and has become a local hero. It eats a rodent or two every night, which makes the locals very happy. And Flaco is a New York hero. If you like birds, you'll love it. Now, I okay, will. let's get back on the detail of this. Now, for us to be here, someone has to get pregnant, someone has to have a child. That's or, the conventional way, yes. Yep, that's normal. So, okay, why does that lead you to associate us with birds? Well... It's a big jump yes, to some of so us. So, in one way, pregnancy, which is the real killer adaptation for most mammals, everything but monotremes, platypus and the two echidnas. So whether it's a marsupial or a placental mammal, we have pregnancy. And that is totally different from the way that the young of 
pretty much all other life on Earth come into the place. Mm -hmm. If we just focus on vertebrates, all the other vertebrates lay eggs. The reason that pregnancy is such an advantage, and you can think of the time spent in the pouch for marsupials as a sort of a type of pregnancy, given that the joey latches on and stays in there and gets to grow for a long time as a sort of alternative to having a placenta and an umbilical cord. But focusing just on placental mammals, this is a huge change from laying an egg. And I think the, the good analogy to use is if you think of pregnancy as being sort of in a diving bell where you've got this cable that connects you to the nutrients that you need in this case the umbilical cord if you're in a diving bell you've got an unlimited supply of oxygen coming down through the pipe so you can be down there basically as long as you need to be and the same is true of pregnancy when a mammal is growing a baby the baby can stay in the uterus and get bigger and get more developed pretty much indefinitely until it gets too big to safely be born. And for most Mm -hmm. mammals, that means a long pregnancy without too much worry. You compare that to birds, reptiles, amphibians, anything that lays an egg, the egg is much more like being in a submarine. When you go down, you have to bring everything you need with you. So a mother bird has to provide a huge amount of energy all at once when she lays an egg, and if she's going to lay multiple eggs, do that several times. That puts a really sharp limit on how long that baby can develop because she has to be able to get all of those nutrients to it at once. Whereas with a mammal, you've got this long period of time where the baby Continual provision of nutrients. Exactly. We don't have that. Because even though we have a placenta and an umbilical cord, we have pushed the envelope on how big you can get this baby relative to the mother's hips, and in particular how big you can get its head. Our brains are the Mm -hmm. tail that wags the dog here, or the head that wags the dog. So we've pushed this right up to the limit. And we start to look a little bit more like an egg-laying situation where we start to have compromises in how much our baby can develop before it can be safely birthed. You know, something like a horse doesn't really have that. A foal is born and able to sort of wobble to its legs and feed itself and do all the things that we spend years getting our babies able to do pretty much within that first day. And that's because the horse doesn't have this if you'll forgive me, geometric problem of getting the baby out safely at at the level of development that means it can look after itself to some degree. Where's the kiwi gone in this argument? Well, the kiwi is the bird that's living most similarly out at the limit of how much provision you can give to that baby. So the kiwi lays far and away the largest egg compared to the size of the mother of any bird. it's bigger than the mother, isn't it? Not bigger than the mother, but it really takes up a huge amount of her body cavity just before it's laid. It's about one-sixth her weight. And if you think of a kiwi, it's about the size of a chicken. Oh, that's right. It's multiple times the size of a chicken. Yes. So, you know, you're talking about a bird the size of a chicken laying an egg that's six or seven times the size of a chicken egg. Huge egg, huge amount of nutrients going in there. So the kiwi's really pushing the envelope on how much they can invest into baby development before hatching, just as we push the envelope on how much you can invest into baby development before birth. Right. And that makes us similar. Well, I think it makes it similar to birds more generally. We've reimposed this limit. Or if you like, we've sacrificed the benefit of pregnancy that all other mammals get to enjoy. Now, what happened? Is there any clue to where we went wrong? Because with birds, the male or the female can sit on the egg. Yes. The egg doesn't care yes. whose feathers are keeping it warm. Exactly. And you get a lot of birds that share it. Either yeah, well, the human species, we didn't do that well there, did we? The bloke sort of provides the sperm and can tick off. In theory, but the trouble is, when we produce a really, if you like, underdeveloped baby, which humans no doubt do, that's putting a big evolutionary challenge on the mother. You know, we live now Mm. in a modern society where there's a lot of help for people, single mothers, for childcare, all of that sort of thing. To think about some of these arguments, you have to take us back to the Rift Valley and, you know, developing without modern amenities and modern ideas of collective welfare. So you have to imagine someone trying to raise a helpless baby in that situation. It's going to be much more difficult. And if you compare the total amount of time it takes to get from embryo to reasonably self-sufficient offspring, actually pregnancy is a pretty small proportion of that for a human baby. It's nine months, but when you're talking about getting a child to the point where they could make themselves a sandwich, you're talking Mm. about years. So actually the father can take an active role in most of that. It's only the nine Mm. months of pregnancy where he physically can't contribute. Now, well, you've made a very good point. <laughs> after uh, birth, it's, he it's, might not contribute, not, but he not, should. It's not biology that means men shouldn't help. It's just they don't want to and don't. Mm, interesting point. 
They could, straight after the baby's born, do a lot. I get that. Now, what's the key thing about with birds, Hmm. unlike with us, they're stuck, aren't they? They've got to stay stationary. Yes. So when you protect that egg. egg. So that must have some sort of consequence for the father and for the mother as well, whereas we and elephants and a whole lot of others can move around until the baby's born. And this is a huge advantage of pregnancy, and it's one of the things that pushes another similarity between our families and most birds' families, which is that Mm. most birds are to at least some degree monogamous. You have extreme examples like the swan or most parrots who mate for life and are almost completely faithful to that. And then you have other birds that mate for a few seasons or, you know, sort of serially monogamous. And one of the reasons that that happens is that if one parent is going to be at any given time totally immobilized by the task of keeping eggs alive, this has got to be a team effort. Someone either has to bring food back to the parent that's sitting on the eggs or take a relief shift so that that parent can go off and look after themselves. And there are really different versions of this across birds. Pigeons tend to do one parent in the morning, one parent in the afternoon. Penguins famously do, you know, weeks or months at a time where one parent sits with a huge amount of food that they ate in one hunting trip and then they swap and the other parent goes out for a few weeks after that. But in quite a lot of cases, and birds are one version or another of monogamous, and that is directly in response to the amount of care the eggs and then the helpless babies need. Mm. Okay. Now, the kiwi. Yes. Is it born with feathers? Kiwi is born with feathers. Kiwi is a precocial bird. Or precocious. So, I mean, that's a distinction from a lot of other birds because the, the mother has to stick around and help them until they're ready to fly off from the nest. Yes. The kiwi's part of a group of older birds that would include, say, chickens, ducks, swans, the other ratites, so think ostriches or emus, mm-hmm. all of which are precocious or nidifugous, and that means that they're born a little further along, a little bit more like other mammals in that they have developed a coat of feathers, they can usually walk pretty quickly, generally can't fly immediately, and in the case of kiwis, they can never fly. And they're not songbirds. They're, they're not, not songbirds, birds, no. Now, what's the link there? Has anyone figured out why it would be that that category of birds, with those things in common you've just mentioned, mm. are not songbirds? Songbirds are the crown group, if you like. They're the most recent group of birds to evolve. They're also the largest. So bird kind, if you like, really hit upon something that works when it figured out the songbird body plan, brain and behavior, and they have exploded. So when we look at kiwis or emus or that, you know, you have to be careful with evolutionary biology of talking about some animals being more evolved with another, wouldn't say that, but they are more primitive, if you like. They were a first try. And once the songbirds and their immediate neighbors, the parrots on the evolutionary tree, sort of found their stride, they became, if you like, the default bird. They're the ones who've done the best in terms of spreading around the globe and diversifying into lots of different species. And they're the ones with the most similar mating to humans. Mm, Okay. So what can we conclude from all of this? I mean, there are things that we have in common with some birds, that is. We have to hang around after the birth and Mm. look after the chicks. There are some things we don't have in common, but what can we learn generally from this? Why is this of such interest? Other than the fact that I find it spellbindingly interesting, <laughs> you know, what value is it for us to know this? What can we learn from it that might be useful? We live very divorced from our evolutionary history now. We yeah. live in an environment that we have created in an extremely short amount of time compared to the amount of time that we were shaped by natural selection to a previous environment. And so some of the ways that we live now don't reflect what, if you like, our genes are prepared for or are asking for us. And it's not necessarily immediately helpful to go looking at our nearest relatives, the chimpanzees or the bonobos, Mm -hmm. and say, well, perhaps we should live more like them. Because actually there was a huge shift in the way humans live between our living relatives, the great apes, and how we are now. And a critical element of that was connected to our childbirth. The fact that a chimpanzee has a pretty non-traumatic childbirth, pretty quick, and is basically looked after by the mother. It's in the line of other mammals. There's a big shift between them and us where we switched to having this very long pregnancy, very big baby, protracted, painful childbirth, and long, arduous childbearing. And that is absolutely the evolutionary force behind a lot of our social behavior, including our 
you know, more or less monogamous pairing in order to look after children. And cheating is a, a whole interesting area of evolutionary biology of how you end up with a system of monogamous pairing, but with what we call extra pair copulations also happening. Now, one of the things I found fascinating in this article is your chat about how brains and hands mm. work together as a pair. Yes. Because we want to use our hands to do things. To do that, we use our brains. The more we use our brains, the more we can use our hands. And you say they enrich each other. Now, they say you learn something every day, but that was something new for me. Yes. That the hand and brain working together in the human species enrich each other. Yes. So we have very dexterous hands. If you think about doing something even like writing in longhand with a pen and paper, if anybody does that anymore. Well, I um, was going to ask you, actually, <laughs> when did you last write a letter with uh, pen and paper? I can't remember when I did. Oh, it was about two or three weeks ago. I quite like it. But something like that, that's an extremely fine, dexterous thing that we're able to do with our hands. And they're very flexible. They've got a lot of joints. They've got a lot of muscles. Just from a sort of computational perspective, before you even think about the thought that goes into what you would write, the job of controlling all of that tiny musculature in your complicated hands needs a lot of brain power to do it. You need a lot of computational power in order to do that. Yeah. So the benefits of being able to do things like build small tools, make arrowheads, all of these very you know finicky little jobs that we're able to do needed more brain matter in order to do that. And then once we had that extra brain matter, we could think up more interesting things to do with the hands. And then this creates this virtuous cycle. And it then links into walking upright. If you've invested a lot of your brain power and your energy into having really capable hands, you don't want to be leaning on them all the time. You want to have them free to do their business. So that seems also to be linked to why we walk around on two feet instead of supporting ourselves with two feet and two arms like, again, chimpanzees or bonobos do. You're going to go further with this, aren't you? You're going to say because our legs are below our hips yes, rather than the back and side and the torso's above, we've got a pelvis that becomes narrower Yes, and the opening in the middle shrinks and that's how we end up having pregnancies more like eggs. That is, that is exactly right. Because something has to come out. There are other animals with big babies. An elephant baby compared to an elephant is not too much smaller than a human baby compared to a human. But the difference is an elephant baby compared to an elephant mother's big square hips is small. And a chimpanzee baby compared to a chimpanzee's hips that are rotated backwards, you know, supporting a forward-leaning back, again, pretty easy to do. When you tilt the opening in your hips down to be straight between your legs, you're really constraining the size of the birth canal. And that means that we end up with this time limit on how long baby can get bigger. And baby has to come out totally helpless. And grow up as a child that causes havoc until it's past its teens. Yes. People talk about the fourth trimester being the first three months of a baby's life. But we could, by comparison to something like a horse, we could talk about the whole first year. Yeah, probably. So, we're a long way from the Kiwi, though, aren't we? I think you hooked me in with it. The, <laughs> well, the Kiwi of kicks us off, but then you get into other birds as well. Sure. Anton Martinio Truswell, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I'm not sure that we really are like Kiwi birds, but there is that relationship that it's important to understand. And thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Well, that's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us. And I hope you join again next week. As you know, you can always get onto the ABC site, go to RN and follow the prompts to Counterpoint and tell us what you think. And we had someone this week asking what we thought. And that is, is a person who, or a couple who pretend to separate, rent a house, get the benefits that come from being a single mother, blah, blah, blah. And then he rents and claims that house on his business as a business place. You know, aren't they really smart? Well, mm, since you asked for an answer, my view is no, they're not. Yes, they get more welfare than they would otherwise be entitled to, or than they are entitled to. And they need to remember that you and I are paying that welfare and we want it to go to people in need, and because they're getting it, someone else isn't. Anyway, on that happy note, 
Again, thanks for joining us. Until next week, it's Amanda Vanstone saying see you later. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.